Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. Uh, my guest today is Wing Commander Bob Henderson. Hi, Bob. David, how are you? Good, good. Um, you were uh, Squadron Commander of Number 40 Squadron in the Gulf War, and uh, we're marking 30, the 30th anniversary on the 17th of January this year um, of the Gulf War. Uh, Operation Desert Storm and uh, so I'd like to uh, get a little bit of the background of that but um, to start off with can you give me a bit of a, a brief uh, overview of you know, where you came from through the Air Force um, you know, where, where, did, where were you born where did you grow up uh, how did you get into the Air Force that kind of thing okay um, I sorry about the noise in the background that's right <laughs> Um, so I was born in, in Marston and went to school at Wairarapa College um, and quite early on in the piece my recollection is I think it was my 10th birthday my father took me for a fly uh, in a probably a Cessna 172 at the Wairarapa Ruahini Era Club okay. and I thought hey this is neat this is really cool um, you know flying is something that um, I get um, and my father happened to have flown in the Second World War. I mean, um, lots of uh, people of, of his age did. Um, and so I subsequently was looking at the um, how can I have a career flying. Um, academics at the college took my interest, so that became a, a question of how can I continue to do um, tertiary studies um, how can I get into flying? Looks like the Air Force is probably a good way to go. It was a growth organisation in those days. Um, the Air Force at that time had recently purchased the Skyhawks, uh, the Orions and the C-130 Hercules, a massive package of re-equipment. Um, and that all happened just as I was finishing um, secondary school. And I became aware of the fact that the Air Force had a university scheme where they paid you to go to university, fed you, clothed you, um, and accommodated you, and then gave you a job afterwards. And I went, yep, that's for me. So uh, that was the pathway I went. So I joined the Air Force uh, University Cadet Scheme um, and uh, down at University of Canterbury. Um, came out of that with a Bachelor of Science um, and then went on to my wings course, so learning to fly. Um, and the the course I was on, I think we had a total of 36 pilots and navigators. Uh, it was rumored to be, and as best of my knowledge, it was the largest course since uh, the Second World War. Um, probably the largest course that the Air Force has ever, ever run. Um, 18, 18 of us graduated. So okay. 17 pilots, one navigator. Um, of those graduates, um, two of our number have since been Chief of Air Force. Oh, wow. Um, so the course quite, in some ways, distinguished itself um, quite significantly um, over the time. Um, so end of the course, uh, from uh, the uh, training days down at Wigramay, found myself at Ahakia um, on the venerable old DC-3 Dakota. Um, so six months off the end of a wings course as a young pilot, um, now sitting in the left-hand seat of a DC-3 flying it all around New Zealand, 
flying across to Australia, flying up to the Pacific Islands. It was, it was a, a brilliant start to a career um, and certainly taught one to be very um, dependent, uh, independent and, and to be very trustful of your own skill sets. Um, I was then lucky enough to get involved in the continuing upgrade of equipment in the Air Force. So um, the Andover was bought to replace the DC-3. Um, and uh, of course at 42 Squadron we were also doing VIP operations so we were doing ordinary um, A to B passenger stuff, we were doing VIP work and we were also doing parachuting so static line and supply dropping. Um, so a range of roles. The Andover came along and took over all of those roles um, and I was about to move into the left hand seat of the Andover um, when I got told um, no you're moving, you're going to Wigram um, to take over as responsibility for the NAV training school for at the time, which was the Little Devon, which was being used for the, the NAV training. Right. While I was there, that was replaced when the Air Force purchased three uh, F-27 100s from Air New Zealand and converted them for the NAV role. Yep. And so I ended up uh, straight into the left-hand seat of one of those. Um, and the aeroplane was used for the navigation role, but was also used for a VIP and communications role, and then also picked up the maritime patrol for the South Island to take the load off the Orion. Yep. So we were doing seven and eight hour fishing patrols around the South Island with the aeroplane. So again, a variety of roles. Um, uh, what happened after that? I got qualified as an instructor um, and it so happened that the Andover fleet on 42 Squadron was short of a, an instructor at about the time I finished my training. Uh, so basically went straight back to 42 Squadron as a training captain. Um, and then purely by chance became the boss of 42 Squadron um, because the then commanding officer um, elected to leave at relatively short notice, took all of his leave and was gone um, within I think two weeks of him having um, given his notice in, so I was the uh, acting CO for a few months while a new person was found. Uh, and then was asked to set up the VIP flight with the Cessna Golden Eagle at Woodburn. So oh, we, people, pilots, engineers, and aeroplanes back to Woodburn, um, and aircraft hadn't been there for 30 years or something, I think. Um, and that was, a, that was an interesting challenge, moving a, a flying operation back into the engineering base. Yeah. Um, and our primary passengers were the Governor General, the Prime Minister, and the Senior Cabinet Ministers, and the Chiefs of Defence. Um, so it was very much a corporate air taxi role, um, which was interesting. And at the end of that, uh, for some reason, the Air Force must have decided that I could do something different. Um, they sent me and my family to the UK for a year to the Royal Air Force College at Cranwell. Oh, right. To qualify at the Department of Air Warfare there on a thing called the Aerosystems course. Um, so everyone's familiar with the test pilot course and the Aerosystems course in the UK and also in Germany and also in the United States is for the second half of the crew of a people who learn to operate, fly, and develop a new aircraft type. So a routinely a test pilot and an aerosystems graduate will work together 
and the introduction of a new aircraft type. Um, and that course took me, we went to Europe, we went all around the UK, we went to the United States, um, and it was a great education. Um, and, and there were, as opposed to just learning aeroplanes, we learned a lot about operational activities. Um, and we learned quite a lot about the plan for defending the inner German border. So we're talking about the late 80s that all of this happened. Right, right. Um, back to New Zealand, a couple of years in Wellington working in air staff. Um, and then um, I was asked to take over 40 Squadron. So I moved to 40 Squadron at the end of 1990. Okay. Uh, no, sorry, 1989. Um, and uh, end of 1990, of course, we then got involved in Desert Shield. So we sent aeroplanes and people over uh, before Christmas. Um, and then, as you've said, um, on the 17th of January, 1991, uh, Desert Storm started. Uh, with the first attacks um, on the uh, Western forces by the, the Iraqis. Um, and I arrived in theatre on the second night of activities uh, to five um, air raid alerts from Scud attacks coming in from the Euphrates Valley. So we were there, we were sitting in Riyadh City, um, which is about two hours south of the Q8 border by flight by C-130 um, for the duration of the war. Right. Well, can you take me back to the very point where uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait and the world started to go, we've got to do something about this. Um, you must have been fairly active as the CEO of the squadron, working out a plan of what was going to happen. And I seem to recall, I'm not sure of this, but wasn't 75 Squadron going to be deployed and then they changed their mind and decided on 40 Squadron? Is that correct? Or was that Air Force rumour at the time? Or <laughs> <laughs> you, you might think that. I could, couldn't possibly say it. My, <laughs> seriously, my understanding of the situation was with the invasion of Q8, clearly there was a huge level of concern amongst the Western nations. And clearly a lot of that concern was politically based around the um, surety of supply of oil yep. from the Kuwaiti oil fields, as well as the question of um, country A being able to just walk across the border and, and take over an, an adjoining country. Um, politically, that's not a good thing to have happen, um, but a lot of the pressure was clearly around the security of the oil fields. My understanding is that the government looked at how New Zealand might contribute. So whether it might contribute with boots on the ground, whether it might contribute with a, a frigate in the um, Gulf, or whether it might contribute with some sort of air power. And on the air power equation, um, I and the other squadron bosses were aware that the Skyhawks were being looked at, 75 Squadron were being looked at as potential first choice. They had a deployment, deployment role, they deployed every year to Singapore, um, so that we had that capability. Mm -hmm. um, and then also I know 5 Squadron with the Orion was looked at, and I mean 5 Squadron have been in that part of the world for a long time ever since assisting with surveillance. Um, and I 
my my best understanding of the reason the decision was made for it to be a 40 squadron deployment was the interoperability of um, the equipment with the allies with our allies that's my personal understanding um, as to why the government decided to send the c-130s rather than the, the skyhawk or rather than the orion and it was as much as anything, just the state of the equipment and the other airplanes at the time. Um, the C-130 in a transport role is in a less uh, lower threat situation in terms of weapons and things. Um, and as long as we, as long as uh, the airplane has competent communication systems that can integrate with the other forces, then you can use transport airplanes side by side. You don't need the um, necessarily the sorts of data flow information that the Orion and, the, and a, a fighter jet need to be able to transfer information and update each other's screens and all of that sort of level of communication. So I think that's why it fell to 40 squadrons. So very late in the piece, um, I was called in and basically told, grab someone else that you trust, you've got a week to plan the deployment. Um, the deployment phase was really simple. Um, no, let me rephrase that. The deployment phase was really easy, and that's because since 1965, 40 Squadron have been going to Antarctica on Ice Cube every year for a month, year after year after year, with two airplanes and all the people. The Squadron has a requirement and always has had a requirement to be able to deploy two airplanes and enough people and equipment to operate for 30 days unsupported uh, anywhere around the world on 24 hours notice. That's what Ice Cube practices and we just went right we do Ice Cube so that's our immediate deployment. We're going to be there for longer than 30 days so what other engineering and support capability do we need to take with us to be able to operate continuously for how long bosses? And they said, we don't know, assume six months. Um, and so it was an expansion of the ice cube plan, not a start from zero. Right. Um, and that enabled us to build up the capability actually of how to do it quite quickly. Did that mean that uh, Ice Cube for that summer season was cancelled, or did you also have to do the Ice Cube as well? No, funny old thing, we were completing the Ice Cube flights. Um, so the summer, that summer of um, 1990, we had been unable to complete all of our flights because of bad weather around um, uh, McMurdo. And we had got to the point where the ice runway was uh, starting to break up, literally break up. The ice sheet was breaking away from the mainland and, and drifting away uh, out into McMurdo. We had three flights um, that we were still scheduled to achieve. And we had uh, basically on the last day of our deployment, uh, the weather was such that we decided to launch three aeroplanes um, in trail. 20 minutes apart, um, turn around on the ice and come back straight back home um, to achieve the deployment for the year. As it happened, my aeroplane broke down on the ice. Uh, we had a problem with refueling. We ended up having to sleep, stay overnight while the engineers fixed the aeroplane. Uh, we couldn't get back out again that same evening. Wow. 
Um, so we were helicoptered to and from the aeroplanes because it was unsafe to drive over the ice margin. We had three crews, so 18 people sleeping in a bunk room that was designed to sleep six because we there was a bunk room for one crew. Yep. Um, and we got out the next morning and we were about halfway home and we got a call from um, air traffic services to call Air Force on a certain HF frequency. Of course, three aeroplanes all dialed into that frequency. And the message was quite succinct. Um, when you get back to Auckland, go straight to see the boss of flying because you guys are deploying to the Gulf. Um, so it was literally on that flight home that all the negotiations started amongst the pilots and the flight engineers and everybody else as to who was going to go and who was going to stay home. Okay, wow. <laughs> that's, that's from one extreme to the other, isn't it? The ice of the desert. <laughs> well, that's amazing. So um, how did you choose, uh, obviously two aircraft went uh, in the initial deployment. How did you choose which two aircraft? Was there any specific reason for Yeah, whichever, which, whichever two the engineers could get out of the hangar. <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously, the aeroplanes were going to be away for um, the maximum amount of time. Um, the aircraft have a calendar servicing cycle on them, plus an hour's servicing cycle. The calendar servicing cycle is the one that stops you. Yep. Uh, when you, you know, when you, it's like you're wearing a fitness on your car. When you get past that date, you can't keep flying. Yep. So the engineers sat down and worked out which aeroplanes they would put through the hangar now to give them a brand new calendar service cycle to deploy them and then worked on a replacement plan. So um, during the whole deployment, um, I think we had four out of the five squadron aeroplanes actually in theatre. Okay. So we changed aeroplanes over during the time as well. All right, okay. Uh, and how about... Um you mentioned about the negotiations started on that flight, but how did you select which crews were going to go and, or did it sort of almost become inevitable that everybody would rotate through? Um, we ended up taking 61 people, I think it was, so 60 plus myself. We initially sent three complete aircraft crews. Yep. We sent up the sufficient engineers to be able to do 24 hour shifts. So that was round figures some 20 engineers as well. We had um, a small administrative support team, so uh, an administration officer um, and office staff. We were told, be self-sufficient. Don't turn up expecting anyone to look after you. You've got to look after yourself. Yep. So we took our own, we took our own um, ground loading team with us. We took our own ground security team with us. Um, in terms of the people who are not part of 40 Squadron, so the administration um, support people, the ground security, um, the um, ground loading teams, those were someone else's responsibility to choose. We sat down and talked about making sure you chose people who um, you could have um, good trust for and faith in. Um, in terms of 40 Squadron, so the engineers and the air crews, um, including the flight engineers, um, we everybody volunteered. Let's be let's be open. Everybody volunteered, um, and it became a case of 
trying to ensure that we gave everyone an opportunity to serve because they wanted to do so, but removing the higher uh, emotional risk part of it, which means um, those who are newly married um, or families with um, expecting children or with very young children at home and those sorts of things. So it was those sorts of emotional um, filters that we applied to reduce the stress on people, on the individuals, and to reduce stress back here in New Zealand on families. Um, the the squadron had operated well. Actually, New Zealand's last proper involvement in any war would have been Vietnam, wouldn't it? There was nothing in between that w was a a proper war as such. Uh, and the squadron operated in and out of Vietnam as well um, with the Hercules. So, was was there anyone still left at that stage in 1990? that had been involved in that last deployment? No. 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 I, I guess. And, and, and very quickly it became evident that the type of operation in Riyadh and in the desert and in, in the heat and the sand environment was significantly different to the environmental threats in Vietnam, but also the uh, physical military threats. So in Vietnam, the, the military threats were um, one kilometre outside of the perimeter of your airfield. You had no idea who was there. Um, we were living in, uh, so King Khalid International Airport was the airport we were based at. It is an international airport. It was at the time. Um, Saudi, Saudi Air was still operating for a period of time. Um, we had all of the New Zealand, Brit, French transport forces all parked at that airport. We had all of the Brit tanker forces parked at that airport. Um, we had a number of the American tanker forces parked at that airport. The other American tanker forces and the um, AWACS aircraft and other support aircraft were parked at the other airport in Riyadh. Riyadh is a, is a, a huge city two huge international airports. Um, so the threat was not, the, the threat was uh, what we would nowadays call the um, you know, isolated terrorist threat was an IED yep. type thing yeah. that we're now all used to among, in our cities. So we had that threat, um, but in terms of the threat to the actual operation of the airplanes and everything else, because you could secure the airport, the threat was either um, being hit by a, a scud by these the missiles, and the scud is a uh, updated Russian version of the old German V2. Right. Yep. It's a it's an extended range version of the German V2, literally, yep. um, and its accuracy is about um, half a kilometer radius. Uh, it's it's an area weapon. It's not a point weapon. Yeah. Um, yep. But the other the other threat was. Um, that we determined was uh, having flights of Iraqi aircraft, potentially mirages coming through at low level and getting through our defense, air defense screens and getting to the airports. Right, right. Because 
our airports were vulnerable because we had all the airplanes parked up like it was a commercial airport. They were just parked up, so wingtip to wingtip to wingtip. And if some, you only needed two two jets to get through with, yeah. with weapon stores on the wings, and they would have created havoc. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a lot of effort in the um, airborne patrols up by the border to protect the airports south of the border. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Uh, so, when now you said you arrived just after the actual war kicked off, um, when did the first crews arrive there? It was was it October? Oh, I, I should have looked that up before we started. Yeah, talking. I should have too. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't October because it was after we finished Ice Cube, which basically is the beginning of November. Oh right. So okay. the first, my recollection is the first cruise. Uh, we're on their way beginning of December. My okay. apologies, I don't have the date in my head. That's that's fine. Uh, so that's only really a few weeks before you arrived there. Um, that, that, that they'd already got there and established themselves. So um, I just wondered, you know, that period of Desert Shield, was it, I, I can't really ask you because you hadn't got there early, early but I wondered if it was much different operating then as it was later i mean you, were they doing a lot of flights uh you know transporting stuff to places and all that sort of thing during that calm period yes from our perspective from the from the perspective of the um raf transport force which we were part of so my my uh, raf colleague peter bedford uh, who was also a wing commander um yeah had five aeroplanes, I had two aeroplanes. So between the two of us, we had seven aircraft and we very quickly worked out how we would manage those seven aeroplanes and those seven crews, given that we were actually under control of different governments. Right. Um, so we, we worked out a system that, that satisfied everybody and satisfied um, our chief of staff back here in New Zealand that we were not handing over command and control of New Zealand assets to a foreign power but meant we could use the aeroplanes really efficiently. And okay. um, the, so the work of those for those aeroplanes between um, Desert Shield and the first month of Desert Storm really didn't change much. Okay. Um, so it was, the work was flying on a daily basis out of Riyadh and, and servicing the forward uh, air bases that the RAF were using, um, moving people, um, munitions, equipment, mail, and all those sorts of things to uh, across the, the forward airfields and along the um, the front line. So flying between uh, as far south as Dubai periodically, um, but from Bahrain, uh, Dhahran, which is on the coast, in from uh, Bahrain along the Q8 border to Kasuma, which was the central airport. Uh, and again, another 10 or 12,000 foot long um, airport on the, the border, and then up into the hills to Tabuk, which is where the F-18s were, uh, sorry, the F-35s, the stealth fighters were based. Yep. So we were operating right across the extent of the um, peninsula. The, the obvious place we did not go to was Jeddah. Um, but Tabuk is up in the mountains just north of Jeddah, and we flew flew there on an almost daily basis. And so that 
service of the transport airplane started during Desert Shield and continued during Desert Storm. Right, okay, okay. What were the living conditions for you guys, the pilots and crew, ground crew? Um, uh, the, with the, the distance of, of time, um, it's probably safe to tell the story. Yeah. When, <laughs> when, the, when the teams arrived up there for Desert Shield, um, they moved into uh, the airport at uh, Kim Khalid International, the airport hotel. Okay. Yep. On the literally on the perimeter of the airport ring road, um, along with quite a number of the Brit um, forces and the Brit medics. The by the time I got there, um, and I petitioned the, our chief of air force uh, Peter Adamson to be allowed to deploy um, over Christmas time, between Christmas and New Year, when it was very obvious that it was likely that a shooting war was going to start. Um, and my petition was just, I'm responsible for these people, I'm putting them in harm's way, I should be prepared to go and, and look, help look after them. Yeah. Um, so Peter agreed and sent me up there. Um, by the time I arrived and everyone was starting to get, and more and more people were being deployed into theatre, what a lot of the Brit forces were doing um, was moving into the walled compounds within the city. So, um, you know, what we would co consider to be a group of terraced houses, but with a wall around them. Yep. Yep. Um, and so I arrived uh, into Riyadh, and I think about the second meeting I had when I got there was with a um, RAF Air Commodore who was responsible, he was a pilot, but he was responsible for administration of the RAF forces uh, in theatre in Riyadh. And we had a discussion about um, the Kiwi forces moving into a compound. And the short version of the story was, uh, I said, look, sir, we now have a fighting war. There are you know, people throwing nasty things around. You want my crews to be able to operate their airplanes continuously and at very short notice. And we've already settled into an operational routine. My admin staff have done an absolutely brilliant job as Kiwis do all around the world. They had negotiated this whole package deal with the hotel. Yep. Room rate, cheap um, food, cheap laundry, everything was percentages and percentages and percentages off. Yeah. By the way, uh, your Brit tanker force and your Brit medics are in this hotel as well. Um, we are five minutes from our airplanes. If we go into a compound, we're 45 minutes from our airplanes on a dangerous, unprotected road. Uh, we'll stay where we are, thanks. <laughs> um, I think this was the first time in the world to, that this particular RAF Air Commodore had ever been told by a junior officer no. Um, and I have to say, in his defence, we have been the best of friends ever since. That's good. So they've been out, he and his wife have been out here to New Zealand and stayed with us. We've stayed with them in the UK um, because we discovered the following day we're both glider pilots. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> uh, and, and as it turned out, it worked out really well because we were five minutes from our aeroplanes. Um, because we were able to get aeroplanes into the sky really quickly, uh, there's a handful of Iraqi and 
in American ground troops who are alive today because we were able to get airplanes to them on the front line really quickly. Right. Uh, right. People who had suffered major accidents. Um, and it, you know, the, old, the 90 minutes of golden time um, to be able to get them to good medical care, we were able to achieve that because we were at the airport. Right. Right. So um, in terms of going out and picking up casualties like that, were you just landed on rough strips or just anywhere or did you have to did they have to get casualties to an airport somewhere an airstrip so we were our airplanes were in, were part of the medevac fleet so the kazavac is the helicopter from the middle of nowhere to a recognized airport okay. and then the big transport aircraft is from the recognized airport to the base hospital um, and so we were operating we were picking people up from Dharan, which was uh, just south of the Kuwait border on the coast, from Kasuma, which was on the centre of the, the Kuwait border. Um, casualties will be moved to those airports either by ground vehicle but routinely by helicopter. Um, and then we would pick them up from there and fly them back to Riyadh where they had a um, major tented hospital erected. Um, okay. The other major hospital in the in the area was at Bahrain, which was where the New Zealand um, Army medical team was based. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, with the uh, with you arriving there um, just as the war had started. What was your first mission? Do you remember your personal first actual operational flight into the, into the war zone? Uh, so one of, the, one of the advantages of having sent the crews up earlier during um, Desert Shield was during that time, all of the rules about operating this massively diverse group of airplanes between um, all the way from the Saudis with their hooks and their F-15s and things, the French with all of their equipment, the Brits with their equipment, the Americans with their equipment, all flying the same piece of airspace, yeah. was working out the logistics of managing that. So the air traffic control was provided by the American AWACS sitting over the top. Yeah. And uh, you would get airborne from your airport and 10 miles out from the airport, you'd check in with the AWACS. They would log you into their system and then you go silent. And if they wanted to tell you something, they would talk to you. Yeah. Otherwise, you just didn't talk to anybody. They were constantly talking to the fast jets, of course, which we couldn't hear because it's all scrambled. So all we hear is that hissing white noise. Yeah. Um, the other rules were about using who flew in what directions, it worked out, everyone flew at the same speed, and then they created lanes across the peninsula between airports as well. And so arriving in there, flying in um, on the resupply flight, which took me in there, we flew into Dubai and we were met in Dubai by one of the airplanes from Riyadh and uh, their crew plus one of the other captains who then took over control of our airplane to take us into Riyadh because he said, it's going to be a lot easier if I fly the airplane and I'll tell you what's happening as we fly there rather than trying to explain to you how the system works. 
it's really easy once you get your head around yeah. how it's all been put together. But just trying to sit down with a blackboard and explain it is not easy. So for every time we had new pilots um, and flight engineers, because they were so integral to the crew and the navigators, arriving in theatre, they would spend two days as a supernumerary member of an operating crew flying around so that it became embedded in their heads how you fly. Yeah. And the fact that you've got to listen to five radios and any one of those radios may issue you a challenge because you're suddenly in the wrong place or you've been detected by someone as being a potential threat. Um, and you don't have time to have a conversation if you're detected as a potential threat. Um, then these are the things that the, the rules by which you must play and, and how you must handle your airplane. So every time, every time someone new arrived in theatre, um, they would spend two days being indoctrinated by physically flying around. After that, it was actually all pretty simple because you never flew in cloud, you stayed clear of the cloud. Um, behind the front line, we flew at 10,000 feet. Within 10 kilometres of the front line, we flew at 250 feet. Okay. We couldn't go below 250 feet because we had helicopters below us. We couldn't go above 500 feet because we had fast jets above us. Right. At night time, on the front line, we flew at 500 feet, just so we had a little bit more of a safety buffer from the terrain underneath. Right. And you asked about the um, evacuation of casualties from the front line. One of the first things we did um, once I got there was we worked out the pathways across the desert from Kasuma, particularly Kasuma, back to Riyadh to the main base hospital. And we worked out, we've, we found ourselves three routes across the open desert, two hours long, um, which we knew we could fly flat out at 500 feet and not be in any risk of running into anything like masts or high tension lines or anything else. Yep. So that we could do those, fly those routes 24 hours a day. Okay. Cool. Because we figured that if, if it was going to get serious, then actually we wouldn't have any right to any airspace because the jets would be just above our tails. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you're navigating this um, the old fashioned way, it was before GPS and all that came in, wasn't it? Yes, but we had inertial nav systems. So our airplanes had inertial nav platforms. And that was a huge advantage. So the Royal Air Force was still operating on Laran Sea, which is an area navigation system. Mm -hmm. um, and it's great for flying from the UK to Cyprus. But once you get to Cyprus, uh, you've got to find some other way of finding your airport because your Laran Sea won't take you there. Yeah. Um, so we had the inertial platforms and that made us very, very valuable because we could pinpoint our position so we did do operations into the open desert. Um, I was asked one day to go and pick up a, um, a company of rangers who were in the open desert on the, right on the Q8 border. And we said, where's the airport? And we got told, no, there is no airport. They've got an engineer with them. The engineers found uh, sand, which is competent to carry the weight of a C-130. It's 3,000 foot long, it's flat, and this is the coordinates of it. And we went, yeah, okay. 
And so we flew in, we set ourselves up, we had this conversation on the aeroplane of how are we going to validate that this is the right place to put the wheels on the ground? And the answer was all eyes on the flight deck, every crew member standing on the flight deck, any one person can say, this is the right place and we will land. Yeah. As long as you are absolutely satisfied that what you see confirms that this is the place where we're supposed to be on the surface of the earth. So we set the Herc up um, in approach phase, drifting down into the sand, drifting down, drifting down, drifting down. And as I said to everyone, I'm happy to go to within one meter of the sand. If no one's called this is the right place by then, we're gone and we go home. Yeah. And at about 50 feet, one of my load masters shouted, there's a windsock. And we all went, where? And he said, over there. And there's this little black windsock about this long, sitting beside the rock. <laughs> on the ground, landed. We opened the ramp as we were taxiing, as we were landing, as we rolled through. By the time we got to the end of this piece of dirt, or this piece of sand, 50 of these troopers were already climbing up the ramp into the hold of the aeroplane. They were all hiding in the rocks on the edge. <laughs> By the time we turned around, we said, are they all on board? And their boss said, yes, they're all on board. And we took off and we closed the ramp as we took off. Wow, that's amazing. So, and th that was the power of the, of the capability that the inertials gave us. We could put the aeroplane or put any load that you wanted on the ground in a pinpoint position. Oh, that's, that's awesome. It was great fun. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the Hicks, uh were... Well, some three of them were 25 years old by that stage, and two of them were just a little bit younger. Uh, did they give any um, trouble in, in the war zone, or were they quite reliable? They were extraordinarily reliable, and that was all thanks to the engineering team. Um, the engineers who we detailed off to send up there sat down and they did a risk analysis of what they would be faced with and they very quickly realized that the one thing they would be faced with, and they talked to their Brit counterparts about this because the Brits are used to operating in the, the desert. Yeah. And they, they, they very quickly realized that the one issue they would have to face was the corrosive effect of the sand. Right. And the fact that the sand is so fine some of it's like talcum powder and it gets in everywhere. It gets into all the hydraulic seals, it gets into all of the airports, it gets into everywhere. Yeah. And so every day when the aeroplanes came back to Riyadh, uh, we would start at about uh, first aeroplanes, the aeroplanes would both be airborne at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah. They would be back in Riyadh about two o'clock in the afternoon crew change, aeroplanes would head off again and they would keep flying until the work for the day, the package we'd been given to do was complete, which could be 10 o'clock at night, it could be four o'clock in the morning. Right. Uh, routinely it was about midnight. So about midnight the aeroplanes would get back to Riyadh and be handed over to the engineers and the engineers then had four hours to work on the airplanes and their first priority every single time was to clean them. Yep. Um, and so, yes, we had some problems with sand ingestion. We had some problems, a couple of aircraft had problems with loss of uh, airspeed, um, pedostatic type systems, mm -hmm. which were transient, but 
um, you know, nevertheless, it causes a, a hiccup at the time. Um, otherwise, the only time we then discovered we had a problem was months after we got home. So this story is a tangent to answer your point. Yep. One of the aircraft that had been in the Gulf was coming back from the United Kingdom uh, on its way from um, Bryce Norton to Washington, Dallas, going to the call on our embassy in, in Washington. And as when the um, flight engineer was doing his post-flight inspection of the aeroplane, putting it to bed at night at Dallas, he looked up the tailpipe of one of the engines and went, half of the blades are missing on the rear turbine, on the, the hot turbine. And he went and looked at the other engines, the other engines were all okay. And he went, when did that happen? <laughs> went to and said, did you notice anything? And the pilot said, no. So he went back and had a look at his, his log, paper log, recorded of every 30 minutes of the flight. And about probably two hours out from the, the coast of the USA, he noted that this one engine had drooped in power a little bit and he just had to push the throttle forward a wee bit. Yeah. And they decided that that's probably when this turbine partially failed. And the good old bulletproof Herc engine just went, I just need a bit more fuel to generate the power you want. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so that aeroplane, of course, didn't fly home. We had to fly an engine up to it. Um, they inspected the engine and found that the in the turbines and the, the discs, the discs are full of drillings to let air flow through and cool everything down in the centre of the engine. And these um, holes, the drillings in the discs, were full of glass. Wow. So this is from the sand going through the engines with the heat being turned to glass and blocking the breathing holes in the turbines. So all three aeroplanes that had been in the Gulf were then inspected, 11 out of 12 engines were changed. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So, <laughs> so, so there were some unintended consequences. Um, by the same token, my um, RAF um, companion, Pete, Peter Bedford, um, took off from uh, once the once we were in Q8 and we were doing battalion changeovers, we would use five aeroplanes for five hours and we would change 800 people over on the ground, one aeroplane on the ground every 15 minutes just on a piece of sand. And so you can imagine the dust storm that each aeroplane created. Um, and Peter had the misfortune to have uh, an aeroplane just as he got airborne, full of troops in the back, hauling the, hauling the aeroplane off the ground as soon as he could to get, get off the sand, to have the outboard engine on one side decide that it had had enough of this environment and quit. Yeah. And he said it was a little bit rough handling for a couple of minutes till he got the aeroplane a little bit more speed on the aeroplane and got it stable. But it was the same problem. It was just a sand ingestion okay. damaging the interior of the engine. Yeah. Gosh. So uh, when you're actually in the in the war zone there uh, in Riyadh, um, was there any problem with supply of any parts, or 
did everything that you needed come up from New Zealand or could you go to the RAF and say, you know, you guys have got Herx, can we have this bit off you? How did the part, parts supply work? Really, really, really well. We took with us um, all of those things that you expect to use on a day-by-day -day basis. So spear radios and seals and hydraulic seals and you know, all the, the, the things that aeroplanes go through. We also looked at the history of each of the aeroplanes that we took with us and said, this aeroplane for some reason seems to periodically need these pieces replaced. So we took some of those things. Yeah. Um, and then we were just plugged into the RAF supply line and the RAF had a TriStar that operated between Lynham and Riyadh every night, an overnight service between Lynham and Riyadh. So if we needed anything, we just went to uh, our RAF supply colleagues and said, we need one of these and one of these and one of these. And they would put it on the TriStar coming out from Lynham that night and we would have it the next day. Okay. Plus, clearly they had their own stocks there. Plus there were American Hercs there as well, who we could always go and borrow things off. Um, yeah, so all of that worked well, the supply line, because of that TriStar shuttle, the supply line was actually very, very short. It worked really well. Okay, oh, cool. Um, did you get much time to mix with the other nationalities, uh, you know, socially and, and you know, having a beer with the, the Brits and the Americans and that on the base? So there wasn't too much of that sort of social activity. Um, we, mingled continuously with the um, RAF C-130 crews because we were working side by side with them. And because we were living in the same hotel as the RAF um, VC-10 tanker crews, we got to know them quite well. Yeah. And so one of the things, and their boss, um, Group Captain Jeff Simpson was the base commander as well. So he was a pilot, yeah. he was the squadron boss and he was the base commander. And one of the things that of course happened was that the truckies were really rude about the job the tanker pilots crews had and vice versa. Yeah. And so we said, well, actually let's just show each other what life's like. And we sat down and we agreed that um, anyone from my team could go fly on the tankers. Anyone from the tanker teams could come fly with us for a day. And it was a real eye opener for, for both sides yeah. um, to go and see what what other people were doing and how they did their job. So we worked very, very closely from that perspective. Um, Socialising, there was very little, and that's mainly because we were doing 18-hour days continuously. Um, and the other half of the fact is, of course, Riyadh is a dry country. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't um, thought about that. So, uh, that had to be respected. Um, the third part of it was that um, the New Zealand team were well accepted by the locals. I'll tell you a story in a second to prove that. The Brits were accepted, the Americans were not very welcome. And so one of the things very early on in the piece that became evident was when you do go downtown and, and the team was allowed to go downtown and their time off, um, they had to go in groups, look after each other, etc. Um, but make sure you are not, absolutely not mistaken for an American. 
So preferably wear civilian clothes and carry something very obvious that identifies you as a Kiwi, as a New Zealander. And the, the really obvious one we discovered was the New Zealand flag. Okay. Was instantly recognized. Um, and so, and that made a big difference. So there was an active reason why we didn't want to be directly associated with the Americans generally. Yeah. Um, plus they were living in their big camps and, and things that was, they were in a sort of defended area, if you like. Um, the one bit of socializing we did do, um, which I was really grateful for, was on a day-by-day -day basis, nearly every day I went into town to talk to the New Zealand ambassador. So the New Zealand ambassador and his family and um, minimal staff stayed on in the New Zealand embassy. And it meant the ambassador and I could compare notes as to what he was being told by the New Zealand government and what I was being told at the morning briefings that I attended that were run by um, General Schwarzkopf and his team. And we could figure out where the gaps were. And, and, and especially for New Zealand, pass information back to New Zealand. Um, but the ambassador and his family were very hospitable and they periodically hosted the team at the embassy. Okay. Uh, for cocktail party, cocktail hour and things like that. And, and that even, even just being able to do that and go and relax and, yeah. Um, yeah. Was, was very welcome. It was, everyone was very grateful for that opportunity. Yeah, but the story about New Zealanders being accepted was while we were there, of course, um, uh, Easter came around. Now, you need to remember that the maps of the region produced in the, by the Arab countries do not include Israel. Mm -hmm. Israel does not exist on their maps. It does not exist as a state. Yeah. And Christianity is acknowledged, and Christi if you talk talking to the um, Saudis, as they said, um, the Quran and the Bible both tell the same story. They have a different nuances, but the Quran actually mentions the great book, the Bible, three times. Okay. They tell the same story, but they don't recognize Easter, for example, the same as we don't formally recognize Ramadan. Yeah. Um, so Easter came around while we were there, and I was astonished to walk back into my room at the middle of the day, having done the early shift flying. And in my room in the hotel was a handmade straw basket with hand-painted hard-boiled eggs and a copper script letter which said, we trust this gift will allow you to celebrate your festival. Wow. Every single New Zealander, all 61 people, got that gift. That's great. That's great. From the that's hotel staff. That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Um, do I remember correctly that you had a particular mascot with you? Um, one Flight Lieutenant Henry, Man uh, Henry Fanshawe? Was Henry was he there? You? I think he was. Henry, oh, Henry's been to so many places around yeah. the world. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure I read in Air Force News that he, he went on a deployment over there. He probably did. <laughs> <laughs> he probably got mentioned in dispatches. Yeah. Um, no, it is, yeah. <laughs> well, he wasn't. He wasn't with my crew, so he may well have been with one of the other crews. So there were four crews, and we kept kept the crews together as integral units. Right. Um, right. 
Uh, it wouldn't have surprised me if Henry was there. His name's probably on one of the lists somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those uh, watching or listening that don't know Henry, he's a, a very well-known teddy bear in the Air Force and wears a flying suit and he's got lots of medals and he, he's been all over the place. <laughs> he's been everywhere, literally. Yeah. And on all the squadrons. <laughs> and he's now in the Air Force Museum. Uh, but um, in terms of um, taking other people on, did you have any um, journalists go with you or anything like that? Oh, yes. Yeah, we had... Um, Partway through the deployment, we had a New Zealand media team um, arrive into theatre um, with a um, defence PR person as their minder. Um, and so there was TV One, Radio New Zealand, um, a Herald reporter, I'm not going to remember them all, I'm sorry, my apologies to them. Um, and they were sent up to have a look at what we were doing and report back to New Zealand. They were very quickly indoctrinated by the um, our army PR person, plus um, I, I think it might have been one of the PR people from General Schwarzkopf's team, oh, yes. that they were allowed to take photographs and video they had to submit the photographs and the video for inspection, purely as a way of protecting the journalists, as opposed to not trusting the journalists. Um, they were allowed to talk to people. They were allowed to record interviews. The one thing, the one thing they were not allowed to do was identify where they were on the surface of the earth. Okay. Apart from the fact they were in Saudi Arabia. Yes. Yes. So the physical location of the imagery was the piece that was not allowed to be made public. Right. Um, so these the media team turned up and, and they arrived into Riyadh. Um, and the first thing when I sat down with them was they said, we're surprised we're here. We were told you were in Oman. I well, we're not, we're in Riyadh. <laughs> and by the way, we're flying to within a couple of kilometres of the front line every day. And they went, no, you're not, nah. Stop pulling our legs. And I said, okay, as long as you absolutely understand the rules about identifying the place that you are taking photographs of, you're going on the aeroplane first thing tomorrow morning with Captain Dave Wake. And sat Dave down and said, Dave, just make sure these guys understand how serious this is and what we're doing. And so Dave went with them on the morning flight, which was out to the coast of Bahrain and Dubai, uh, then Dahran, and then along the pipeline to Kasuma along the border. And Dave took them along the border at 250 feet and with the ramp open, with the TV team and all the rest of it in the ramp. And they flew across all of the camps that were out in the open desert as all the troops were building up their encampments on the outer open desert, five clicks short of the, the front line. Yeah. The video made its way straight back to New Zealand because it didn't identify where they were. Yeah. But these the media turned up back to our location in the early afternoon after this was all over and like this. <laughs> 
and, and the message was, we were not told you were doing anything like that. And I said, that's what we're doing every day. Um, so the next time that was really, really funny, and um, unfortunately it got me offside with my wife back here because the video turned up here um, and my daughters saw it. <laughs> um, and we were out at the airport, um, myself and uh, Dave Forbes Dawson, my number two, um, with the media team, and we were I, we were looking around the airport and looking at security arrangements and things. Of my recollection, yeah. just a general tour, um, and we were caught out in the middle of the airport by an air raid with a scud attack. Okay, and so we went. Well, we're too far away from the terminal to get back to the terminal to to do anything, so we just parked ourselves up under a overpass with the, you know, a taxiway over the top. Yeah. And um, we all, they had uh, masks and everything. And they said, do we have to put all this on? I said, no, no, just, just, put, just put your masks on, the Darth Vader hood. Yeah. Um, that's sufficient protection. If it looks really bad, you'll have time to climb into the chemical soup. But the Darth Vader hood's 98% of your protection. Um, so then we got the all clear, which we figured we would get because the, the alert came from the French sector, not from the British sector. Um, and so then they stuck me on camera and without thinking about it said, um, what's the worst thing that could have happened? And, and I just looked straight down the bore of the camera and said, we could have been killed. <laughs> and face on the other side of the camera went. <laughs> 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 so, um, yeah, I mean, that was very tongue-in-cheek because there wasn't actually an attack at Riyadh. The attack with the, the missile went somewhere else and yeah. it was fairly obvious to us that it was going somewhere else. Um, so, the, yeah, the media team were um, became very useful um, sources of messaging for us back to New Zealand once they realized how serious, seriously we were involved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think um, New Zealand, pretty much all of New Zealand was following the war, but we didn't see much of what the New Zealanders were doing. We saw, you know, mainly the CNN feed, which was showing what the Americans were doing in the war. And um, even so, uh, you know, I know that uh, us in the Air Force, we were, you know, aware that it was dangerous and all that sort of thing. I don't really know if the general public really thought much about it though. Um, did you ever get a sense of what was going on back here at that time or afterwards? Um, we gained an, well, we gained an awareness when the, this, this media team arrived that the New Zealand public weren't quite aware of the fact that we were operating um, out of Riyadh and that we were operating right up on the front line. Um, I think the imagery they sent back to New Zealand um, helped to dispel that uh, incorrect information. Um, and I think the, the contribution that we made in terms of being in the, uh, uh, intimately involved became reasonably well known. I mean, you know, we, we never got around to talking about how many tons of equipment we, we moved, um, what percentage of the RAF in theatre lift we did, those were all the sorts of metrics we were measuring ourselves by. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just the fact that we were able to 
be there, we're able to contribute, we're able to um, do everything that was asked of us. And we knew that um, if the RAF planners had something difficult or slightly more demanding that they needed from their transport force, their first option was to pick up the phone and ask us to do it. Okay. You know, which is what our objective was, you know, we need, we need to prove we can pull our weight here. Yeah, yeah. And, and that really helped. Wow. I think one, one of the other things that helped as well, purely by happenstance, was that um, you remember I said that I got sent to, or my family got sent to RAF Cramwell to do this error systems course. Yes. And part of that course included operational studies. Part of the operational studies included the battle plan for the um, protection of the inner German border should um, the Russians roll across the, the border. Yeah. And there were 24 of us on that course, um, 18 Brits and six foreigners. And of the 18 Brits who were on the course and myself, 12 of us were directly involved in Gulf War One. Okay. Yeah. So some of my Brit colleagues were in theatre. I knew they were there. We finally managed to figure out that we were each there. Yeah. Some of them were involved in aircraft modifications. Some of them were involved in headquarters. Um, yeah. And so we knew we were each there. But for me, it made it really simple when I first turned up and was talking to the senior British officers to say, by the way, I'm an Aerosystems graduate. I'm looking around here, what I see is the battle plan for the inner German border moved to the Saudi desert. And they went, hmm, you'd be pretty right about that. And I said, so I think I get what the general plan is. Yeah. Now tell me what, where I'm mistaken. Um, because that was this, the building block of the way the, the system um, was set up and Saudi was to take that in a German border model, move it to the desert, and then say, right, how do we now modify this? Yeah. Um, and so it made it really easy for me to be able to walk in there and say, I understand this battle plan because I've studied it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm. And it also proves how important these um, exchanges and inter-cooperation between air forces is. Um, yeah. It just it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, just just means that you can walk into someone else's um, place and say, yeah, I pretty much understand what it is you're trying to do and how you want to go about doing it. So let's figure out how we can work together. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, one of the questions that I had uh, when I when this whole thing started uh, with Operation Desert Shield, uh, I was at Number One Technical Training School at Hobsonville uh, doing my safety and surface course. Um, being safety and surface, we painted aircraft and one of the things that we were all thinking is, oh, are they going to paint the Herks into the uh, desert pink because everything else was getting painted desert pink over there. And I, was there any, ever any consideration of that? There was no time. No, no. <laughs> and it's yeah. a hideous colour. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it worked on some aircraft, but in the Hex, I don't know. It's, uh, it, I think, the, was it the Brits or the Americans painted some of them that colour and it just, yeah, it didn't look right. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, camouflaging an aeroplane is a difficult thing to do anyway. Um, and, you know, particularly given we're flying across the desert and then you fly across green areas um, and then 
over the water. Um, one camouflage doesn't work for everything, so it's a yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, just just in the in the end, with something like a C one thirty, you're you're still better off hiding the aeroplane by using the terrain to hide behind, rather than trying to just blend into it. Okay, so um, the war itself didn't really last as long as what a lot of people expected. It, was it uh, end of February or 23rd of February, I think, that finished? I can't oh, remember. Um, no, no, neither can I instantly. Um, the, it lasted longer than we thought it would. would okay, from our really? perspective. okay. Um, the, so the original sort of briefings were from Schwarzkopf that his ambition was to reduce the capability of the Iraqi ground forces to about 50% yep. before he put any boots on the ground. He, so he was prepared to sacrifice um, aeroplanes mm -hmm. to protect the vast majority of the, the people under his command, which were the troops, because once you started the, the concern being once you started a um, ground combat in that sort of environment, um, you could have casualties mounting up extraordinarily quickly. Yeah, yeah. And given the threat scenarios that were being posed to us, which included uh, chemical weapons, um, and I know there's a huge debate out there, um, there were chemical artillery shells out there on the battlefield. Uh, we brought some Iraqi casualties back from the front line who were injured by their own shells exploding. Um, and they, so they were there, small chemicals, um, but they were there. Um, so Schwarzkopf's intention was to reduce the ground capability, ground force capability by 50%. And then what he was not prepared to do was move until his uh, reconnaissance intelligence people had proven to him that they had achieved that figure. And that starts to become difficult when you understand that the Iraqis were using smart techniques like having um, plywood tanks on the ground. Yeah. 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 Where's that come from? I think the Brits did that, didn't they? <laughs> they did, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Even even the RNZF did that. We had we had ply, plywood airplanes on our on That's our right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and trying to ensure that you've knocked out um, aircraft, um, trying to ensure that you've knocked out air runways, trying to ensure you've knocked out hangars. Um, and even, the, even the, um, the scuds, the scuds were a real weapon of nuisance. Um, they were on their mobile launchers, they were in the Euphrates River Valley, hidden amongst all the trees. They could deploy to a firing position, fire, and be gone before the airborne F-16s, who were designated to attack them, could get to the position where they'd been fired from. Yes, yes. And so trying to even just reduce the number of scud launches to reduce that threat. Um, and so it became, the air war became somewhat of a war of attrition, um, just while they were doing their best to ensure that capability had been reduced. But one of the things that I think in the end triggered the, um, the start of the ground war wasn't so much the attrition of the ground forces by air activity, it was the attrition of the ground forces by uh, PR activity. You talked about 
seeing um, imagery from CNN yeah. of the American ground troops out in the desert with all their gear on and 40 degree temperatures running across the open desert. You can do that for about 10 minutes. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the TV camera's wonderful because you take eight minutes worth of video and use six minutes. You know? yeah. um, the, and um, who was the American reporter? Arnett was sitting in a hotel in Baghdad. And sure. the CNN coverage was being beamed to Baghdad. The CNN coverage was being beamed into Iraq. And so the assumption was made that a percentage of the Iraqi people and a percentage of the Iraqi armed forces would be seeing this imagery. Whether they were permitted to or not is a different question, but they would be seeing it. And they would be seeing these troops fully kitted up with 60 kilos on their backs and Darth Vader hoods and chemical suits sprinting across the desert. Um, and the Iraqis would be looking at their own equipment and most of the equipment they had that I saw um, once we got into Kuwait and got into Kuwait City uh, was circa 1918. So the, the, the level of protection that they were provided was dramatically less than the protections and capabilities that we had. And so that combined with the, um, the B-52s every night walking along the front line, um, dropping 500 pound bombs into the sand, yeah. they caused absolutely no damage. But I watched them one night, it was really impressive this line of B-52s and this wall of fire walking across the sand because the Iraqis were in bunkers 40 feet down. Yeah. So yeah. all that they knew was they had to take shelter in their bunkers because at this time of night, the B-52s would turn up and they would bomb their front line trenches. And then the next night, the B-52s would turn up and they would drop this uh, all these leaflets. And the leaflets were cartoons. And the cartoons were Iraqi soldiers in their trench, Iraqi soldiers in their trench looking at the time, Iraqi soldiers and they're running to their bunkers as a B-52 appears, yeah. and then explosions in the desert. And the message was same time tomorrow night. And so we got to the point where there were thousands of Iraqi troops every morning, just after dawn, would walk across the front line to surrender. Yep. Amazing. And so the front lines, the front line troops were surrendered, they were walking across the, the front line to surrender to the American forces. That's just, that's amazing. The, the power of propaganda, isn't it? It, yep. it, it worked. Yeah. 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 So, um, I mean, I, I think a lot of people thought that uh, having CNN and maybe the BBC and others, um, continually showing the war right through the day uh, was a bad thing for those in the front line, but hearing that, it actually sounds completely the opposite. Well, I, I, I absolutely understand um, that there can be a, an extraordinarily bad side of that sort of PR mm. and the imagery we all saw from Vietnam Yep. Um, and, and of some of the things that happened in Vietnam and some of the atrocities and the use of napalm and some of the atrocities in the villages and things. Yep. Um, you put that on 
in front of your own public and you create huge anxiety and, and huge anger. Yes, yes. Um, now we weren't showing casualties, we weren't showing that sort of imagery. The imagery was of troops training to fight, yeah. Yeah. Not, not physically fighting. When the, when the ground war actually started, um, we got a, a hint that it was going to start and then we were told in the morning it was on. Um, and we were then the next day, one of, so one of the interesting things was the next day um, we were asked to prep our Hercs to airdrop into the Q8 desert behind the front tank, frontline tanks okay. because the tanks had outdriven their supply columns and they needed fuel, particularly fuel and water. Um, and so we, we were in the process of loading our Hercs um, to go and drop this stuff into the desert. And I had permission to do it. <laughs> we had organized all of that beforehand. Um, we, had, we had the capability to do that if we needed to. Um, and we were called off at the last minute. The, some of the supply columns caught up with the tanks again, but the tanks drove across the open desert at 60 kilometers an hour for 12 hours. Just flat out. Um, and right up into Iraq, and then curved back around from the northwest into the northwestern corner of Kuwait behind the Iraqis. Okay. Wow. That's pretty incredible. So that that, that really was, um, yeah, that, that really softened up the Iraqi resistance in that first 24 hours very, very quickly. Um, and they abandoned Kuwait City very quickly, very soon after that. Right, right. So what are your memories of the actual end of the war then and everything coming to an end? Um, it was, I mean, the, the workload just continued on. We, so once the ground war started, um, we started flying, as I said, these flights, um, doing a battalion changeover in the Q8 desert, just out in the mm -hmm. open desert, we would change, take 800 men and their equipment in, bring 800 people out. Yep. Um, with a, a fleet of Hercs, and we were doing that day after day after day. Um, and then once the Iraqis uh, capitulated, um, we had the interesting challenge of being able then to get into Kuwait City, um, because the uh, General Tapita de Villiers was given the task of setting up all of the peace talks and everything, uh, the Brit General. And the Brit ambassador also wished to go back to Kuwait. So Peter Bedford and I sat down and we literally tossed the coin to see who was going to take uh, the general to, to start the peace talks and the ambassador take him home. Yep. Peter won and got to take the ambassador home. I took the billet in to start the peace talks. But Peter came back from taking the ambassador home to say, we have a problem. Kuwait City is under this pool of oil smoke right. and we have had an extremely difficult job finding the airport and so we then had to work out a way of getting ourselves into Kuwait International Airport because we needed to operate in and out of there. Um, I tried it the other way the next day with the general on board we went in underneath the smoke um, and we got there, but that wasn't 
that pleasant either. That was it was a it was uncomfortable. Yep. Um, so we had to work out a way of being able to safely get aeroplanes in and out of Kuwait City, um, which we did. Um, and then after that, it was really a case of just what do we need to do to tidy everything up and then start negotiating to get ourselves home. Right. And so one of the things, one of the interesting things was because we had resupply flights, we now have more equipment in theatre um, and people than we could get home on two aeroplanes. Right, right. So the the that's why the RAF TriStar arrived at Fenopai with us. Right, yeah. Because yep. uh, the Brits went, yeah, yeah, we're um we're happy to support you. We'll we'll um support you getting home. We'll provide you with an aeroplane to help take help get everyone and all your equipment home. Um, but that took some time to negotiate. Um, actually, getting diplomatic clearances to get the aeroplanes home took some time to negotiate because no one in the Indian Ocean would let us land. Oh, okay. Because we've been fighting on the other side. All right. <laughs> wow. Um, so we, had, we flew from Oman around the bottom of India and to Christmas Island. Okay, wow. Yeah, um, with the Hercs to get home. So all those sorts of little things about actually getting home. And then the other one was um, oh, to Singapore, sorry, and then down to Christmas. The other one was um, just once you took the, the lid off everybody in the theatre and they all went, ah, and then started to think about some of the, the stress they've been under, some of the threats they've been exposed to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so became then became an issue of just looking after all of the people as they started to wind down a little bit. Yes, yeah. yeah. And, and all their individual reactions. Everyone, have, everyone had done an absolutely brilliant job. Everyone had been really focused on their jobs and, and looking after each other and making sure that we, um, we uh, did a, a, a really good job. Um, and once you took that pressure off, then people had the chance to go, Oh, ah, hey, suddenly I don't feel quite so happy. Yeah. yeah. Normal reaction. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Did, um, was there, has there been any um, problems down the track from any of your team with PTSD or anything like that? Or Look, to the very best of my knowledge, no. We had the team of defence psychs flew up to um, Brisbane, up to Amberley to meet us on our way home. And um, so I have the advantage or disadvantage of um, having psychology degrees myself. And so um, once we were safely able to start heading home, I was able to turn my mind to um, looking after those people who clearly were having some stress reactions. Yes. Um, and so when we got to Amberley, um, and the, the, the Air Force psych team arrived um, to help. Um, we were able to, I was able to sit down with them and say, so these are the people I want you to talk to first, and this is what I'm yeah. seeing. But clearly you are gonna to want to talk to everybody, but these are the priorities. Um, and then and handed them over to, to um, Kevin and the team. Yeah. Um, yeah. To the very best of my knowledge, because everyone looked after each other so well, um, 
there hasn't been there haven't been any long term effects. That's great. That's excellent. I mean, we're also also very very fortunate that we had we had one person who was injured in a motor vehicle accident, which was really unfortunate. Um, and he was flying out to the UK and then flying home. Um, but we didn't have some of the issues that my colleagues in the RAF had with their friend, their friends being killed. Um, and I didn't know anyone in the RAF who um, uh, was actually killed in combat, but um, a couple of colleagues of my course mates were killed. And when had the chance to go back to the UK later in 1991 with my family and caught up with my course mates. Um, they were really rattled yeah. by the fact that you have, and, and this is a normal reaction, you have a conflict um, that turns into an armed conflict. There is always the risk that people will be injured or killed. Um, and no one wants that to be themselves and no one wants that to be their friend. And everyone's really happy to come home and to come home uninjured. But when one person out of a hundred whom you happen to know doesn't come home, there's a, quite a severe reaction to that as to why wasn't he able to come home? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the converse of that is when 90 out of 100 people are killed, the, the 10 people who survive will routinely have the response, why wasn't I killed with them? Yeah. Um, so humans do this. And so um, my, my, our RAF friends had this reaction of, um, how come we're all okay and our one, this one person, our friend, did not come home? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that, that, that was really tough on them. Um, and they they were really hurting. Yeah, yeah, sad. Yeah, um, I do remember the motor vehicle accident that you mentioned. That I know that rattled the Air Force when that happened. Um, you know, us back home. Um, but as you say, there was nobody in our team were killed. So fantastic result, really, yeah. to go to war and all, all come home. Look, the, and the, the motor vehicle accident was um, is one of those almost predictable ones when you are working in an environment where everyone is significantly fatigued because of the hours you've been dry, doing. When you're driving on the wrong side of the road with the steering wheel on the wrong side of the car and you're turning into a safe place, i.e. turning into the entrance to your accommodation, and you just automatically look the wrong way down the road because oh, that's yeah. the way you always look down the road, and that's all that happened. Wow. Um, it was, you know, it, the, the same thing happens routinely to tourists driving in other countries. But that's, exactly. And that's what it was. it was. It was purely an accident, absolutely an accident. Yeah. Um, and just so tragic that, it, that we had it happen. Yeah, yeah. So at, at what point did you come home. Oh, you said you were there to Easter, so were you there much longer than that? Uh, so it was 85 days, so what's that for January, February, March, it was April. Again, I, did, I haven't looked up the date in my diary. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's fine. So sort of late April sort of thing, you came back to New Zealand and yeah, yeah. back. And uh, we, um, did 
did you just have to get back on to normal work or did you have any leave or what did, what, um, what did we do? I vaguely remember I was required to write an extensive report, which took me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, everyone, everyone that had been away, of course, um, was given the opportunity to take leave, take some time off, um, get out back with their families and things. Um, the families had looked after each other really well back here in New Zealand, including the um, families from the Army medical team. Yep. So the Air Force and the, the Army families had all gotten together and provided, supported each other and, and everything, and all of that had worked well. Um, I honestly don't remember what I did. It was pretty much a whirl because I had to do debriefings, um, write reports and things. I think the, for me, the... I think the one um, cathartic activity once I was home was having the chance to put together a presentation about this is who we were and this is what we did yes. And, yes. and have the opportunity to go around and actually give that presentation to people to explain what, what we'd done and for that to be really well received. I was, I, I was amazed at how well it was received. That, um, People wanted to know what we'd done and, and, and hear about our, our um, activities. Yeah, well, I remember you brought that to Wigram. I was based there by then, and it was sometime in 1991, I guess. Um, and it was a slideshow, wasn't it? A slide presentation. Yeah. Uh, lots and lots of photos that you'd taken there, and it was fantastic. It was really interesting for, I mean, it was a packed house as well. And yeah. it was just really, really interesting for us who had been following it through the news and following it through all the Air Force gossip. Um, but to actually see the photos of what was really going on and what it was really like was fantastic. And uh, yeah. I definitely appreciated that. It was great. Of course, you realise all those photographs were illegal. <laughs> yeah, I, I can just imagine they would have been. <laughs> we, were, we, we asked about that when we got there and we were told that technically you should not be taking photographs in the kingdom. Practically, no one's going to stop you taking a photograph as long as you are respectful. So don't go around photographing the inside of, of mosques yep. and don't go photographing people. Right. So just general tourist photographs or photographs of what you are doing and your activities. Yes. Okay. Yes. But, but be respectful, be respectful of uh, the inhabitants of the kingdom and be respectful of their culture. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and that, that was the line that we worked on and that was okay. And so the photographs were being developed in Riyadh and we knew that they were, we, uh, we worked on the assumption that any time you sent photographs in to be developed, that someone would have a look at them. Yes. And so be very careful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's great that you decided to do that and, and make that record because it's, I don't think we had an official Air Force photographer there, did we? It was really just you guys with the cameras. Was It was just, a, yeah, partly yeah. for that reason. Um, yeah. 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 No, fantastic. Um, now, I seem to recall that Later in 1991, there was an air show in England, I think maybe, uh, was it the Royal International Air Tattoo or one of those air shows? 
and Hercules went over. It was a it was a big sort of after the war air show. Did you did you go up for that? One of our Hercs went up for that. Um, so I did three trips to the UK with the Hercs. Uh, one of them was to take a helicopter over there for a helicopter. Oh, he he heli yeah, that was eighty nine, um, I think. Yeah. Um, so no, I didn't. I I was invited back to the UK for a debriefing. Okay. Yeah. Post um, Desert Storm. Yeah. And so so we went back. Um, the chief gave permission for my family to go with me. We went back um, for a debriefing over there, and we went to dinner at Lynham, uh, formal dinner at Lynham and things. So that was okay. Cool. Um, and uh, of course the other. We still have my course colleagues in the UK and we still have um, contacts with others, people in the UK as a result of all of this that we routinely see and talk yes, to. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wondered about that particular air show with our Hercules there because I do remember that there was a collision between two MiGs and one of them just about landed on our aircraft. If you remember that, <laughs> yeah, no, no. So I remember the air show now. I oh, know I was not there. You wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean this has just been fascinating. So what happened after? How long were you w with the squadron? You'd only been there for a year. So did you continue on for a while, or with the squadron? Yeah, so I, I stayed with the squadron um, till um, early 1993. So I did a. Um, Three years, just over three years uh, as squadron boss. Yep. Um, and then um, my wife and I decided that um, um, it was the time was appropriate to uh, look at establishing another career. Yep. Um, and part of the reason behind that decision was the um, the stovepipe and the, the Air Force, once you started getting into the senior ranks, becomes quite narrow quite quickly. Yes. Um, so we, uh, along with a couple of my colleagues at the time, um, we elected to move outwards. Um, and uh, I actually had myself a job um, teaching at the University of Auckland in the psychology department. All right. Ended up um, being invited to become an instructor on the simulators at Air New Zealand. Oh, right, okay. So I, we left the Air Force with no intention of pursuing an, a, flying, a flying role or a flying job yeah. and ended up, um, because this door opened, um, having the opportunity to join Air New Zealand and uh, become involved with this. So um, then ended up uh, with me on the, the 737 and then the A320 with uh, Air New Zealand for the next, just on, just over 20 years. Right, oh, right, okay. So, so we retired from Air New Zealand, but left Air New Zealand um, just over three years ago now. Okay, yep. So you're completely retired now? No. <laughs> <laughs> just reducing the level of work. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and you're also uh, quite an avid glider pilot, aren't you? So you tell uh, me about your gliding. Okay, so yes, I've been gliding since 1975. Um, and um, got involved in uh, gliding competitions as a, a way of enjoying the sport, yep. um, which led to uh, 1995, me being the Director of Operations for the World Gliding Championships at Omarama, so one of 
uh, five directors that ran that activity. Um, as a result of meeting all of the um, international people involved with that activity, I got invited to assist the French in 1997 to run the World Championships in Saint-Aubon in Provence, um, okay. southern France. Um, and that led me into being involved in the uh, international gliding community uh, from about 1999, initially as a member of the protest jury. Think of it the same as the protest jury for America's Cup. Yep. Same sort of, exactly the same sort of role. So um, we did that. Um, uh, about, I think we went to eight or nine international competitions over about the next five or six years. Um, and then involved in the politics of the, the organisation, um, the International Gliding uh, Federation. Um, and then for the last 10 years, I've been on the board of the World uh, Air Sports Federation. So I've just stood down from the presidency of that organisation. Okay. That's quite a career. <laughs> um, uh, um, and to answer your question, when did I last fly a glider? In South Africa in 2011. Okay, it's been a while. It's quite some time since I've actually had a glider attached to me. <laughs> but what about um, powered flight? Have you done any uh, recreational powered flight? Uh, very little. Um, towing, towing for gliders, so with um, uh, tiger, um, Piper Cubs and such like, and a little bit of micro light flying. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's all. Okay. So you don't miss flying too much? Um, the the reality is I've never just been a pilot. Um, when so forty uh, over twenty years with the Air Force, twenty years with Air New Zealand. Um, my time in the Air Force of those, not counting you know wings course and ground courses and things like that, <coughs> um, I probably spent about nine months sitting in the right hand seat. Yep. Somewhere yeah. between nine months and 12 months sitting in the right-hand seat of an aeroplane. Um, the rest of my time in the Air Force was in the left-hand seat <coughs> um, and as an instructor or a, in a management role on a squadron of some sort. Um, and then with the airline, um, I spent a long time in the right-hand seat because of the way the airline structure works um, before I gained my command. But even when I was in the right-hand seat in the airline, I was working as a human factors instructor, CRM instructor, um, and working so working in, um, in teaching and, and managerial roles as well. Okay. So the, the same is true with the airline. Um, that, and I think the real answer to your question is the most enjoyable job I've ever had was that three years with 40 Squadron. Okay. Where I did my share of flying, um, I, I certainly didn't steal the trips, but I made sure I, I kept myself current in all of the, the roles that the aeroplane had yep. um, and, and sufficiently current to be able to take an aeroplane somewhere around the, around the world if I needed to, or make sure I had a really highly qualified navigator to look after me. Yep. Um, and then the rest of the time was looking after the 80 aircrew and 80 engineers that were all part of the squadron. Okay. Um, and so 
the, the, the flying was the bit where I could go throw an airplane around, but actually the, the piece of work I really enjoyed was the looking after the people. So, so 40, 40 Squadron was, um, was, an, was for me, the ideal job. Did you think back then that 30 years later they'd still be flying the same aircraft and they're approaching 60? <laughs> when I was working, when we came back from the United Kingdom, I spent just under two years working in Wellington um, and I was the um, director of um, planning in Wellington for the air staff. One of the roles I had there was to assist with the negotiation of the contract for number two squadron to go to now. Which I claim is a success. It was a five-year yes. contract lasted for fifteen years. Yeah, it's great. One of the other projects that I had was to look at the replacement of the Air Force fixed-wing fleet. And and so in 1988, I think it was, we recommended that all of the current fixed-wing airplanes be replaced by eight C-130Js. Okay, interesting. It's finally almost happened. <laughs> I wonder how many other people down there have made the same recommendation year by year. <laughs> quite a few, I would think, quite a yeah, few. <laughs> exactly. It's really hard to replace a Herc with anything other than a Herc. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful workhorse of an aeroplane. It's really versatile. Um, and there's nothing else that's been built that just has the range of capabilities that, are, that you can plug a Herc into. Yeah. Do, do you um, keep in touch with the squadron? Do you go to reunions or anything like that? I keep in a degree of contact with the squadron and I'm supposed to be speaking at a squadron dining in in two weeks time at Whanupai. It was supposed to be last year, COVID got in the road. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, periodically um, go back to the squadron. Of course, most of the faces have changed and things, but... Um, just keep in contact, and of course, a, a lot of the people that I, f I flew with when I was at the squadron were subsequently with me in, in New Zealand. Right. Um, you know, that's a, a been quite a normal progression for people, so um, keep in touch with the, the people through that avenue as well. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, one last question, I guess. Um, did you have a favourite hook of, of the Fleet of Five? Was there a favourite? Um, I was going to say there was one that was a bit of a hanger queen, and I can't remember the number, but um, no. I mean, they, you know, they, they all performed the same. Um, you know, as I say, the aeroplane is just a great workhorse. It's not, it's not the nicest aeroplane to fly. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong, it, it, it's, it's actually quite hard work to fly, but it's just such a great workhorse. You can do so much with it. And it's such a faithful aeroplane. So, do you think they're probably easier to fly now that they've been upgraded with all the, you know, new cockpit in them, or is it still just as hard? Um, the so the airframe itself hasn't changed, and that's the bit that's hard. The electronic flight deck makes it a bit easier. And I've flown the the simulator. The the so I've flown the the, the simulator they have for it. Yes. Because you the presentation of information is all gathered onto that single central instrument for the pilot, yep. which is the same as the electric jets, the same as the, the modern um, Boeings and the, the Airbuses. 
all of the information you need to be able to fly the airplane is gathered onto that single central instrument. Okay. And so, so it makes it much easier from that perspective to, to work the airplane. But then, of course, when that instrument dies, life gets really difficult. Because <laughs> <laughs> now you're having to use all these old techniques that you've completely forgotten about called radial scan and things. Like <laughs> yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. No, brilliant. Now, uh, thank you very much, Bob. It's been a fascinating uh, talk with you. And, and uh, really, I've learned a hell of a lot about what happened over there. And, um, I really appreciate it, uh, and it's. I think this is a great way to um, celebrate 30, 30th anniversary of what you guys did over there. And um, thank you very much for your service as well. Uh, thank you, Dave. I appreciate that, and and I appreciate the chance to share. It's um, as you can hear from the, you know, it was a it was a fascinating experience, and I think the for. Uh, a serviceman to have the opportunity to actually seriously go and practice what they've trained for um, and to discover that you can do it moderately well is, is uh, invaluable because otherwise all you're ever doing is training you have no idea whether uh, how good you're going to be so um, and and that wasn't just me that was the whole squadron I mean we came home from uh, Gulf War One and we won the bullseye trophy for the next two years. That was all because of the experience that the team that went to bullseye had gained operating, uh, flying the aeroplanes and working operationally. Yeah, absolutely. And just, just, having, just having that confidence that we can do this. Fantastic. Yeah, no, you made, you made us proud, that's, that's for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, Dave. My pleasure. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.